good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you all today. Uh, welcome to our family gathering. Uh, if you haven't been here or haven't been here in a while, it's good to have you. Um, we call it our family gathering because uh, Jesus makes us the family of God, and so we, uh, we inhabit that identity. We're going to talk about that more in a, in a few weeks, but, um, and we celebrate it, the fact that God has made us sons and daughters, brothers and sisters who can uh, learn with each other, share with one another, uh, and enjoy the love of God together. So that's what we're doing today. We've been in a series uh, for seven weeks now called This Sacred Life. We're looking at eight assumptions that describe the way that Jesus sees and saw the world uh, as a place that was filled with God's presence and activity. And Jesus inhabits this worldview, and then he models it and teaches it to pass it on to us so that we can have it too. Last, uh, this is the second to last week, I should say, uh, of this series. Next week, we're going to uh, wrap up the series with a brunch church. So um, we'll be talking about the last of these uh, axiomatic statements over brunch together. So I hope you can make that. Um, but we're utilizing a book. Many of you have it. Uh, some of you have even read it. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> called Having the Mind of Christ by a couple friends of mine named Matt Tebby and Ben Sternkey. Um, and as John said in the announcements, we're going deeper uh, on Tuesday nights online and every other Friday on Zoom, or on, in person, I'm sorry. So throughout this series, we've talked about the fact that uh, the goal of our lives, of the Christian life, is union with God in love, and that God is always present and at work. And that this God who is present and at work is just like Jesus, and he longs to meet us in the reality of our real lives, where we really are. And that he cares about our lives and all the things that we encounter more than we do even. And what we looked at last week is that this God wants to do through us what he also does in us. That we live one life with him, for him, through him. So where do we go from here in this penultimate week of this sacred life. You guys know I love that word, penultimate. I'm going to use it every time I get to the second last uh, sermon of the series from now on. Uh, mark my words. Anyway, where do we go from here? We go to Luke 20, the very, the very end of that chapter into Luke 21. So Luke 20, verse 45 and onward, the verses will be on the screen as well. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Some of the disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. 
But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Jesus, uh, in this section, talks about scribes who devour widows' houses. And then he points out, lo and behold, a widow who gave more than all the others, all that she had to live on. Another way to translate that phrase is that she gave all the life she had. It's a little differently when you put it that way, right? Today we proclaim the good news, friends, that this is how God's love works among us. God's love recognizes, redistributes, and redefines power in relationships and communities, upending the unjust and divisive reign of ungodly power and reconfiguring everyone and everything inside the power of God's love. Friends, let us reckon then with how power works because God's love is not power blind. God's love is not power blind. Um, The passage that we read... um, is often interpreted as the widow being an example of someone who gives generously, right? How many of you have heard this before? I taught on this not too long ago, so if you were around, I apologize for repeating myself here. But the way that we've interpreted this section before is that her piety, her faithfulness, her, uh, her, her love is greater, superior than the others, and so she gives out of her hopeless poverty. We use it as an example of generous giving. Maybe you've heard people like me stand on stages like this and talk about her as an example that you should follow by giving to the church generously. And I think there's something to this, but and we'll talk about that something in a second. But I also want us to see that Luke frames the observation that Jesus makes in a very specific order. Did you catch it? Because first, Jesus observes how the rich scribes, those who are adorned with fancy robes and get all the honor and make lengthy prayers, that they've gotten these riches and this honor by way of nefarious injustices, including devouring widows' houses. They've been cheating widows out of their homes and their inheritances. And then we have, just by coincidence, Jesus looks up and sees a widow giving all the life she had left in the temple. And then people are commenting, his own disciples commenting, on all the beautiful decorations that the temple has. Isn't it marvelous what they've done for God here? The sequence is not arbitrary. We're supposed to ask ourselves, Who paid for those decorations? Where did all those precious precious gems and gifts come from? Jesus concludes this section by saying, all of this is going to be destroyed. The grandeur and opulence that comes by squeezing the last bit of wealth out of the most vulnerable has got to go. It's actually not of God even though it has God's name written all over it. Do you see it? 
It's incredibly clear, but we miss it, don't we? Here's the thing. God doesn't. The good news is that this is how God's love works among us. God sees how power works. He recognizes the work that power does. He sees the widows' houses being devoured and their lives taken from them, and he works to redistribute and redefine power in relationships and communities. He upends unjust and divisive reigns of ungodly power, and he reconfigures everyone and everything inside the life-giving power of his love. Friends, if this is the God that we follow, then let us reckon with how power works too. Because God's love is never power blind. <clears throat> so God recognizes how power works, yeah? And, um, and then he also redistributes and redefines power. He doesn't shrug it off as just the way that the world works, or he, and he doesn't say that his only recourse is to rapture people out of this ungodly system to heaven. In fact, um, there are multitudes of examples, both from Jesus' life and from the community that follow him, of God beginning to undo these systems, to, to establish new ways that power can work, to include and empower people, not to exclude and dominate them. One of the examples of this comes from Acts 6. We see an early example of God's people beginning to redistribute and redefine how power works as a signpost that God is present and at work. And so Luke, the very same author that we just read, records this, Acts 6, verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews, these are ethnically Greek Jews, who were among them, complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve, that's the apostles, the leaders, gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. I used to wait on tables, and I, that was kind of my life verse. I had no idea what it meant at the time, but it spoke to me. They say, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Now, we, I've always read this section as, um, as kind of talking about how important it was for the apostles to preach and pray. And like anything that falls into their job description that isn't of those two things needs to be like delegated to somebody else. Like the lesser work needs to go to other people so that they can do like the really important stuff. That's the way I've always read it. But don't miss this. There's a, there is a distribution of food that's happening to the widows. Again, we see widows in Jerusalem, in the Christian community. And the, the Hellenized Jews, the widowed Jews from outside of Israel, they weren't receiving their fair share. And so the Greek Jewish widows um, actually had a more marginalized status than even the widows from Israel. So widows are like the lowest on the totem pole, and then there's even an ethnic hierarchy within the widow status happening in God's church. 
So what did the leaders do when a group of women came to them and said, there is injustice happening here? They listened to the women. It seems profound, doesn't it? You're like, okay, no kidding. But, but so often, we don't see this happening. They listened. A group of women come to powerful men in the church and they say, there's this injustice that's happening to us. And the leaders, they actually don't get defensive. They didn't justify their actions. They didn't gaslight the women and tell them that they were mistaken. They didn't default to their theology and say, well, we're all sinners. Maybe you should just forgive these Jews who aren't giving you your fair shake. No, don't do any of those things. They recognize and believe their perspective. They said, if you're experiencing injustice, then something must be done about this. And so what do they do? They, they do something radical. They empower the community who is on the receiving end of the injustice to do the rectifying. They empower the Hellenistic people with authority. They hear their perspective. They see it for themselves. And they redistribute their authority so that those on the bottom could address what they experienced with the blessing of those who had more power than they did. Where in the world did a community learn how to do this? the Sunday school answer. Jesus. (laughs) They learned it from Jesus. They learned it from watching their rabbi, their teacher, their leader, their savior. Jesus who leveraged his honor and status as a rabbi and healer in order to give it away to those without. He lifts up the poor and the children, the tax collectors, the sinners, the impure, the demon-possessed, the sick, His teaching and his healing redefined who was on the outside and who was on the inside of God's kingdom. Jesus constantly got into honor contests with the leaders who excluded and stole their honor from them by besting them one time after another after another to the point where they stopped asking him questions. They just thought it was better to keep silent because of how much they got smoked in those things. And then Jesus takes all this accumulated honor and he redistributes it to those who have none. You want to know who was some of the biggest recipients of Jesus' honor distribution? Women. Women who were treated like property by most men, who had a lesser status in society and no voice in the way that uh, their community was run oftentimes. They are the ones who... Jesus often teaches and treats and empowers as disciples. That word disciple is no accident. A disciple isn't just somebody who um, like sits idly by while somebody else mansplains to them. A disciple is somebody who is intentionally being trained and empowered to go and 
do what they've received from their master. Jesus is training leaders when he calls folks like Mary disciples. He holds women up as models of faith. And he submits himself to women for even his daily needs. Jesus is being radical here. Radical. And so what is the community doing? The community is, in, in Acts 6 is acting out what they have learned from Jesus himself. That the way to rectify injustice is to empower the ones who are on the bottom so that they can begin to bring wholeness to the rest of the community. Are you, do you feel like you're often on the outside looking in? On the bottom looking up? Jesus sees that place. He sees where you stand. He understands himself as a marginalized Palestinian under Roman rule, what it's like to be in that kind of life. And he gathers all honor to himself in order to give it back to you so that you could be empowered to do the very same thing. This is how God's love works among us. Our God recognizes it and then raises up a community that can redistribute and redefine power. He upends unjust and divisive reigns of ungodly power and he reconfigures everyone and everything inside the power of his love. Friends then, let us reckon with how power works because God's love isn't power blind and neither should we be. So what do we do about Uh, power in our day? What's our move? Um, I think we have to start by recognizing that it exists and where it exists. This is new for many of us because we're not used to thinking in these categories. We think often in terms of individual action and responsibility. And so for most of us, many of us, it is out of sight and out of mind. What you can't see can't hurt you. Often this is an indication that we hold actually some sort of power because those without it can't help but see it. And here's the crazy thing about um, power, especially in unjust systems. You can actually be caught up in them even if you can't see them and don't intend to uphold them. Did you know that? The widow who we've already said was sincere, honest, faithful, generous. She's a giver, right? Jesus doesn't discourage her actions by any means. She actually does offer more than the rich can, and yet in her faithfulness, she can at the same time be perpetuating systemic injustice. She doesn't have to intend it. Both things can be true at the very same time. And we, it's true of us. We don't have to intend harm for us to be caught up in systems of harm. In fact, most of us, uh, most of the harm that we're complicit in, we have not chosen of our own volition. We didn't bow our head and raise our hands in order to harm other people. I don't remember that altar call. Do you? 
the system the widow was in exploited her faithfulness even as it devoured her house. So here's the thing. Most of us probably don't fall into extreme categories that we see here. Um, Any Pharisees here uh, hold immense power over a nation religiously, socially, economically? No? If you are, please see me afterwards. I've got to talk about our budget. Um, (laughs) Nobody falls into that category. Okay. Um, and, And most of us probably aren't first century Palestinian widows who have no fathers, sons, brothers to, like, help us with an inheritance. Like, utter destitution. Two shekels to your name that you just put into the offering basket and you're walking out of this room with nothing to your name. You're probably not there either. Which means that we're somewhere in between this scale, right? Of incredible power and destitution between all power and no power. Um, And so that, that means that we have to start asking ourselves about power. We have to start bringing uh, what's below the surface above to the surface. You need to start wondering about who has power in all these situations in my life. And how is power expressed and what work does it do? Whose voices are heeded and whose are ignored and silenced? Am I one of those that's silenced? Or do I not know what we're talking about here? We have to ask ourselves, in what ways do I have power that I haven't reckoned with and how has power been used against me? These are discipleship questions. This can be extremely challenging for us, some of us in the room, especially if we've enjoyed, as I said, some level of social power. There's an example that uh, Matt and Ben use in the book that has really uh, helped me to see a lot of this because, you know, I like to sail boats and um, there's this thing called wind that helps you to get around whatever body of water you're on. But they, they share this analogy of the fact that you can be, be riding a bike and have uh, a 20-mile-an-hour tailwind and not know that the wind is blowing, right? Has this ever happened to you? You're riding along or you're doing something where you have a tailwind, and because you're moving at the same speed as the wind, you think, there's no wind. There's no wind. There are no cultural forces at work helping me along the path of life, Right? But what happens when you turn around and go against that 20-mile-an-hour tailwind at the speed of 20 miles an hour? Now you've got 40 miles an hour blowing in your face. And all of a sudden, the wind that you couldn't see before is now holding you back and holding you down in ways that you couldn't have imagined before. Now here's the thing. There are people all around you, if not you yourself, who have lived life with some sort of headwind rather than tailwind. And this is all I'm saying. Learn from them. Listen to them. Try to experience life from inside their perspective and their stories. This is what we see the leaders in Jerusalem doing 
with the widows from Greece. We have to recognize how power works, and the only way to do that is to listen by those who are disempowered. And then once we begin to understand that this, in fact, is happening, we are called to steward the power that we have to redistribute and redefine it wherever we can, to leverage it for the sake of others in ways that are empowering to others, not demeaning of them. Um, this has put language to many of the things that we've tried to do as a church, but I never knew how to express them before. So, for instance, like many of you know, that we've, we've had very much difficulty doing this uh, in Haiti as of late because of COVID and then all the shenanigans that are going on with the government and presidents being assassinated and gangs taking over the streets in Haiti. Um, but our guiding principle for the work that we do in Haiti is that we go there as servants, not as leaders. When we show up into a community to see what is happening there and, and what could happen there, they're not asking us what do we as white, rich Americans see for their community. We're asking them, what, where are you headed and how do we lower ourselves beneath you to help you get there? Does that make sense? It's the analogy of a rope. We've used this before. That if they're on one end of the rope and we're on the other end, we can't pick up our end of the rope and push it toward them. That would be unjust. We don't get anywhere. They have to pick up the rope and pull us in the direction that they're going. And so we work with one community for a long period of time. And we just continually ask the question, how do we assist in what God is already doing here? Another way that... Um, we have tried to do this uh, redistribution and redefinition of power is through uh, shared preaching. Now, I know that this has kind of taken a back seat during COVID, um, but the truth is I'm preaching a whole lot more than I would like to be. And it's not because I'm lazy, because I don't enjoy preaching. I like the sound of my own voice as much as anybody does. But one of the things that we had as, a, as an initial goal of our church, and it continues to be one, is to raise up others who can learn how to proclaim good news to us, women and men. Women and men. Because I think that way um, we empower those with less power and we allow our community as a whole, to hear a fuller chorus of what the Spirit is saying to the church. I think right now we have about four or five currently, men and women, um, that are uh, participating in this to some degree, which usually means like at least once a year they're preaching. But by God's grace, I want, I'd love to see that team expand as well as to see greater balances between genders on that team. third way, um, <clears throat> you've probably noticed that I have made some sort of commitment on some kind of level 
uh, to speak directly and honestly about the injustices that I am complicit in. Um, because I don't expect you will do anything that you haven't experienced me doing. And so I make it my aim to regularly own the wrongs that I or those that I'm associated with have been responsible for. People like pastors and church leaders and church people and white middle class men. I get granular about things like misogyny and racism and greed and lust. This has probably made you uncomfortable at some point or another, maybe even now, just bringing it up. But I don't do this because I enjoy controversy. I hate controversy. I'd rather like melt into the stage than have people think poorly about me. But I do it because as someone with social power, this is what it means to follow Jesus and live in God's love and steward the power that I have. So as we respond, what about you? What power do you carry in the world that you live in? How have you seen power misused towards you or others? And in what ways is God calling you today to recognize it and to begin to take steps towards redefining and redistributing power to those who have less around you? The good news that we proclaim today is that this is how God's love works among us. God does this work, recognizing, redistributing redefining power in relationships and communities. He works to upend unjust reigns of ungodly power and to reconfigure everyone and everything inside the new power, the life-giving power of God's love. Friends, let us reckon with how power works because God's love is never power blind. Amen?